from Matthew 26, 17 through 19. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to find a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been bored. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Let's begin with prayer. God, we begin with prayer because we need to express our utter dependence upon you to open our eyes, to soften our hearts, to reveal Yourself to us. Show us Christ. Through all that we do, don't let any of these things as we gather every single week be empty rituals, but use each step, each word, each prayer to show us Christ. Would You do that now through Your Word, through the preaching of Your Word, through sharing communion, through offering our gifts, singing songs, fellowshipping together. Show us Christ for His glory. And we ask these things because we are covered by His blood. Amen. Growing up in a broken family, I never really had a lot of opportunity to build consistent traditions in my family. Most of my experiences as a child showed me the lack of value of any traditions. We, whether it was Easter or Christmas or just regular summer vacations, we didn't have enough stability in our family to establish regular patterns that, that were an expression of who we are, what our identity is as a family. And I grew up in the Catholic Church where we repeated the exact same things every single week without any joy showing me that these things don't really matter. The most meaningful tradition I probably ever had in my life was the time that I was in the play Fiddler on the Roof. (laughs) That's a joke for just a few of us. (laughs) Even that experience taught me that traditions aren't a very big deal. They all seemed rather pointless. What's the purpose of traditions? What value do they add to your life? To me, it seemed like it just added stress and anxiety. And then as I grew in my understanding of the Bible, especially stories about the Pharisees, I began to see that tradition actually prevented people from seeing the truth. 
And I never wanted to be one of those people who said, well, that's the way we've always done it, without explaining why. We're going to take a look a little bit at the story of Israel coming out of the Exodus today. And we see there that the people of Israel are the ultimate example of that's how we've always done it. Incredibly, their law required very specific traditions to be passed on from one generation to another. And from the time of the Exodus in 1450 B.C. till today, a span of 3,500 years, the people of Israel had kept almost the exact same traditions. It's quite the marvel. But their traditions were no empty rituals. At least, they weren't supposed to be empty rituals. God wanted these traditions to be reminders every single year through the life of the nation to show them who He is and what He has done for them. So Moses commands in Deuteronomy 6, to pass on, to teach all these things to your children and they to their children so that someday when they're going through all of these routines, some young Adam like me would rise up and ask his dad, why do we do all this stuff? What's the point, dad? And Moses tells, here's what your answer should be. Son, we were Pharaoh's, his slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. These traditions were built-in object lessons, scheduled teaching opportunities to show off, to be reminders of who God is and what He's called them as a nation to be. So today we're going to look at the greatest of all of Israel's traditions in the Passover. It's an event that doesn't just look backward to the exodus in Egypt, but also looks forward to the time of a spiritual redemption in Christ. When Jesus came, He revealed that there was so much more to these traditions. And He invited Gentiles, most of us, non-Jews, to become part of the family traditions as we further them through communion in the Lord's Supper. Some of you may have grown up in a church tradition as I did, if you grew up in church at all, where communion was just so boring. It was the same words repeated every week the same exact pattern, and it really didn't define who we were as a church or even who I was in my family. And then there's other traditions that kind of respond against that by swinging all the way the other way, and they only have communion like once a year, maybe once quarterly, because they don't, they fear of making it boring and routine. But I want to suggest today that the best way to make communion more meaningful isn't to do it less or to just keep hammering the same point over and over, but to expand our understanding of it. Explain better its rich purposes and how it shapes our identity in Christ. So that's what I hope to do today through an extended look at the First Communion in Matthew 26. We're going to look back with Israel at the Exodus and see in our text that Jesus is our greater Passover. That's our main point today. Jesus is our greater Passover. He's the object of every Old Covenant lesson. He's the purpose of every feast. He's the meaning of every ritual. As we read, we'll see there's three parts to our text, and we'll break it up in those three parts. First, 
We're going to set the scene in verses 17 to 19 and explore this Passover tradition that the Jews knew so well. What is the Passover and these feasts of unleavened bread? And then we'll turn to the Passover preparation in verses 20 to 25. See what Jesus and his disciples did to prepare themselves for this wonderful meal. And finally, it all culminates in the main event in verses 26 to 29, in the Passover fulfillment. Jesus explains the purpose of the entire thing. And then after that, I hope to just leave you briefly with a few points to encourage you, to remind you, or explain to you what communion should be all about as we head into communion, a moment of communion together after the sermon. So let's go back to our text and explore the Passover tradition that sets the scene here on what is the night before Jesus' crucifixion. Turn back to verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city, that's Jerusalem, to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says my time is at hand and I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, as we read these three verses, it just kind of seems like a transition from what happened before to the next. There's not much in these verses that uh, strikes our imagination, but to the Jews, there's key words in here that would just flood their, their minds with all kinds of imagery. So I want to slow down a little bit, and really dwell on the events that are happening in Jerusalem during the Passover. The first thing we see is a reference to unleavened bread. This is one of the many feasts that Israel celebrated every single year. It's commanded in Leviticus 23. Essentially, this feast is an entire week-long New Year's Day celebration. New Year's week celebration. So when God rescued Israel out of the land of Egypt... It was such a significant event in their minds that they decided, or God commanded, that they should restart their entire calendar year on, with this event. They're going to start their existence over, starting every year with this Feast of Unleavened Bread. They wanted it to be a yearly reminder every time to start fresh with this idea that we were slaves rescued by God out of Egypt. And then what happened when they were rescued out of Egypt? They wandered for 40 years in the wilderness on the way to the promised land, eating unleavened bread. That's all they had for their sustenance. They were in such a hurry to get out of Egypt that they didn't have time to let the leaven rise up in the bread. They quickly baked the flat bread, put it in their pockets, and ran out of that place. So this became symbolic of leaving behind the sin in Egypt to become a pure and holy nation under God's authority. So every year they're bringing in the new year with this week-long celebration, remembering that God saved them from Egypt, this time in wandering, all week long eating unleavened bread as a symbol of the wandering in the wilderness. This festival is not just a New Year's celebration, it's also like our New Year's Day combined with Independence Day all in one. What an amazing feast that would be. A huge party. It's a really big deal where most of the nation comes and gathers in the capital city, which is why you see Jesus 
have to prearrange some accommodations to make it happen. The city is packed with people for this festival. But there's something even more foundational to this cultural experience called the Passover. The Passover is the first day of the entire week of unleavened bread. It was the event in the Exodus that kicked off the whole thing. It was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. Broke Pharaoh's stubborn grasp on Israel. So Exodus 12 describes this foundational moment. While they were slaves in Egypt, God told them He was going to rescue them by coming through and judging every single house in Egypt. He's going to kill all the firstborn males in every house. But He warned His own people. He said, I'm going to rescue you, though you deserve judgment too, if you put blood, sacrifice a lamb, and put blood on the doorposts, I will pass over your house. And you need to sacrifice a lamb that's just the right size for your family, the people that are in there. There will be no leftovers. All that lamb should feed are the people that are going to be rescued. And this blood on the door acted as a barrier preventing judgment, the judgment of God from entering into the four walls of the house. It's not that they didn't deserve judgment themselves, but the Lamb took that judgment for them. After the Spirit of God came through and would wipe out all the firstborn males in every house not covered by the blood of the Lamb, those that remained would eat the Lamb, make it a part of themselves, take the innocence of that Lamb and make it theirs. They would eat the entire thing. And all of it was to be done with bags packed, shoes tied, staff in hand, ready to go. So as soon as those cries went out in the other homes, they would run out the door on their way to the promised land. This is their identity. All of it is the defining moment in Israel's history. They are to be a people rescued by God to represent Him and His holy character before all the nations. This moment was the beginning of that calling. And so we see every year for 3,500 years from that first day, the Jewish people celebrating that occasion. The feast is a way of reminding one another, this is our identity. We are all slaves rescued by God. And celebrating the Passover is a way of saying, me, This is me. I am in every need of salvation just as much as those that first generation. And so we see each household will celebrate individually, but they all did it together on the same day in the same city to proclaim their national identity. This is no empty ritual for them. It's packed with so much meaning Vital to define who you are as a faithful Jew, what you do with your life. Every detail of the feast planned out, every bite taken, every prayer offered, every drink shared with your neighbor, all of it to arouse curiosity, to make someone ask questions, why do we do this, and allow the story to infiltrate the entire community. Now, if every detail is planned out and it's this huge week-long celebration, you can imagine that there's a lot of preparation work to be done. And that's what the disciples tell Jesus that they want to get going on there in 17 and verse 19. The first step 
of this preparation process that they talk about is cleaning out the leaven. You go into the house that you're going to have this feast in, and you find, open the cabinets, if they had cabinets, find all of the areas where you would have stored yeast to make bread later, and you get rid of it. All of it. There should be none hidden in the house. Nobody has any in their pocket stored for later so that they can use it and start up a new batch. This leaving behind of the leaven represents the purity required by God when leaving behind sin in Egypt. Now, Matthew's account of that night leaves out a lot of details in a typical Passover meal. There's a lot happening in this whole thing, in this story, or this event that would last from early afternoon until long into the night. John adds a few other details in chapters 13 to 17. He stretches it out a little bit more, like adding the ceremonial washing. That's a typical part of a Passover meal. But Matthew deliberately jumps to this next section because he wants to tie this section to this concept of preparation. Getting yeast out of the house. There's still some leaven to be purged yet. So let's turn back to verse 20 and see this Passover preparation. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now this isn't simply a story of Jesus identifying the betrayer for us modern people to know what's coming up next. We need to read it in the context of preparing for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We're given the hint that the disciples went to go prepare to clean the house out of leaven. They thought they had done their job. But Jesus identified one who is still harboring some leaven. Typically, after the ceremonial washing and before the sun goes down and they begin the official Passover feast, it was tradition just to kind of recline around the table, lay back and enjoy yourself. We're not in a hurry anymore. We don't have to quick get out of here. We've been rescued. So it's a way of, of picturing the freedom they now have. And they would tell stories of God's faithfulness to one another and have appetizers laying out on the table, dipping them in the dish full of sauce. And they did this as they waited for the Passover to begin. And as they're anticipating this holy moment, Jesus announces that not is all right in the group. Someone's holding on to some leaven, symbolic leaven. He says, one of you will betray me. Most of them are really sensitive to this, saying, is it I, Lord? They're really concerned. They want to honor Jesus. He's their Lord, their Master. They went to do what He told them to do. They thought they had done it right. They want to be clean before God. And Jesus explains that someone who has dipped his hand in the dish at this table will betray him. It's not necessarily to say that identify the guy so they're all looking and going, oh, Judas, 
But it's a way of saying how terrible this betrayal is. What treachery this is. That someone who's been with him for three years, walked with him, learned from him, ate with him, even shared a dipping dish with him, is going to be the cause of the greatest crime in the history of the world. The punishment for this man will be so great that it would be better for him not to have ever been born. Jesus is going to suffer. The Son of Man, it's going to be bad for him, but at least he'll rise to glory. But for this betrayer, it would be better that he not exist at all than to exist for all eternity under the hand, punishing hand of God. But Judas knows he's the one. He leans in and takes a big gulp and asks, Is it I, Rabbi? Jesus affirms his statement, You have said so. You know it's you, Judas. Notice that Judas doesn't even call him Lord. Judas never calls Jesus Lord in the Gospels. There's no amount of surrender in Judas' heart to King Jesus. The entire time he has followed Jesus for some other reason. He wanted to be part of some influential movement and have some, some influence in there himself. Or he just wanted to gain some knowledge of the things of God so others would look up to him. But submit to his lordship? That ain't happening. And this should be a warning to every one of us before we get to the Passover explanation. How many people are drawn to a reformed church plant because they finally get to have some influence in a new movement? Or because they finally get to have the teaching that they want? For so many, it's only about building knowledge, having influence, not becoming part of an army of God under the command of Lord Jesus, being molded together as a family under the love of our great Father, becoming a priesthood under the authority of our high priest. This was Judas. And it might be some of you. Hear that warning, friends. Jesus will purge out the leaven from His people and burn it in the eternal fire to protect and purify His people. It's not clear at this point in Matthew's story as it is in John. John tells us, Right after this moment, he tells Judas to leave. Go do your thing. Jesus has finished cleaning out the leaven. Only faithfulness faithfulness remains at the table. This is no minor point for us to go to gloss over. Jesus purifies his people. He applies the blood to his own people. He reserves this special meal for those who are in the household of the faithful. This is why we state that the communion meal is for members of a local church. People who have entered into the blood-soaked home of God. Yes, there's a universal church. We are a holy nation. Every church in the world together. But as in the Exodus, we are commanded to go into a local home where the blood has been applied to the doors and find our refuge there. And in Christ, we see that the building is no longer 
The house is no longer the building that people meet in. I preached on this a couple weeks ago. We, the people, are the church. We are the temple of God where God dwells. The building is not the church. The church, you, are the building. And to enter the house of God covered by the blood of the Lamb is to be joined to a local body that the Lamb's blood has cleaned out all the leaven. Now once we see that the leaven is cleaned out of the house, we can move on to enjoy the Passover fulfillment. Let's go back to verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, these very familiar words, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink of it. All of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, this is the part of the story that most of us are familiar with. We repeat this every single week. But even though we repeat these words every week, it's still not quite as familiar. It doesn't carry all the imagery that it would have for those first century Jews. Every Passover after the preparation, cleaning out the leaven, and then they would have the washing and an appetizer time. Then, when the sun went down, came the official festivities. And it began with the breaking of the bread. It would break the bread in half, a a piece of unleavened bread, after a prayer, and recount this great story of Israel coming out of Egypt in the Exodus, coming through the Red Sea. So breaking the bread symbolized the Red Sea parting in half. And they would eat the bread, reminding them of wandering with God's provision. And so when Jesus says, take, eat, this is my body, he's not just saying this little piece of bread is symbolic of my body. He's saying this whole experience of God's judgment and you making it through the judgment of the Red Sea points to me, to my body being broken to take your judgment. The bread itself, eating the unleavened bread, was a picture of Jesus and His broken body. Remember, Jesus quoted Moses saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is the Word of God coming from God. He's the bread of life, as John says in John 6. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. This is what the bread represents. Jesus taking the judgment upon Himself for us and sustaining us with it. Now, typically after eating the bread during the Passover and recounting a few more details and sharing some prayers, a Jewish family would move on to eat the slaughtered lamb. They recalled how this lamb had covered the doorposts, kept them safe inside of the house from God's judgment. And they would share a cup of wine, the third in a series of four cups. This third cup was to point them forward to the day when the Messiah would come and rescue them from every last enemy. And Jesus is combining these two images again with His own death. He is the Messiah who came to rescue them from their greatest sin, greatest enemy, sin and death, because He is the perfect spotless Lamb. 
And that initial Passover created a new nation and started a new covenant, a relationship between God and the people. A covenant where God promised, I will take care of you. I will give you all kinds of blessings if you meet all these expectations, all these rules, all these laws and statutes. But by His blood, Jesus establishes a new covenant, a new people. In His own righteousness, He kept all the laws for His people. He met all the expectations. He receives all the blessings and then offers them to those who trust in Him. His blood will cover better than the blood of any lamb in the Old Covenant could. And to claim these promises, to claim this eternal life for yourself, you had to eat the lamb. Drink His blood. Make Him a part of yourself. That's what's symbolized by eating the bread and drinking the wine. That in when you repent and believe, you are making Jesus yourself. He is taking your identity upon Himself. And you are taking His upon your, you. On the cross, He became sin who knew no sin. So that in Him, you can become His righteousness. And He lives within you, promising to hold you forever. And then see in verse 29 how this transition of perspective shifts from looking back into history to looking forward long into the future. Up until this point, a Jewish person would say, I am who I am today because of what happened to my ancestors way back in the Exodus. And Christians say that too, but we have a forward-looking perspective as well. We are who we are today because of what happened, but what Christ accomplished on the cross guarantees what we will become. Jesus guarantees that those for whom He died, they will eat and drink with Him in the heavenly feast. This is another reason why we know Judas wasn't there. Otherwise, Jesus is contradicting Himself. How would He say it would be better for Him to never have been born, yet at the same time, He'll be with me in heaven forever? It's because Judas isn't there. Jesus shed His blood for His people who will be with Him forever. And you can know for certain that you will feast with Him. Not because you look in, introspectly, look at your own life and go, well, I had good motives or I, I really tried hard. I'm a pretty good guy. No, we look back to history, to the finished work of Christ in the cross and the resurrection and say, all that was done without my input, without any work on my behalf, that is guaranteed. And we look around today in the present and we look around us and say, have I put myself in the covering of the household of God covered in His blood. And then we look to the future when our Lord, not just our Teacher, our King, will come in glory and bring us home with Him. Communion, friends, is no empty tradition. God help us if our practice ever becomes so routine and meaningless. It's this weekly Tradition that helps us, reminds us, look back, Jesus finished it. Look around you, these are your accountability partners. Look forward, He's coming to get you. It's full of imagery that should flood our minds every single time we hold that little piece of bread in that little cup. And with that imagery in mind, I just want to finish with for you with a, a list of six things that you can write in the margin of your Bible to 
to think of how this reality, this story shapes the things you should think about as we pass the trays by. These six things come from my friend Andy Nacelli, who put them in his First Corinthians commentary. So this is totally plagiarism, but I'm giving him credit for it. So first, when we engage in communion, before we even get to his list, you should know that the only way to participate is to enter the house of God. If you haven't done that, join some church somewhere to have this accountability. Repent and believe so that you can have this weekly assurance. So first, Andy tells us, look within. We look within. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 that we should examine ourselves. But we tend to think that means to look inside and dig up some some lost or hidden sin that we need to bring to light in order to become worthy to receive the bread and the wine. But no, the context that Paul is writing in is about the unity of the church. He says, examine yourself to see if you are unified with people around you. Is there some broken relationship among you that you need to... Set this aside and go fix that because the blood unifies his people first. This is just a picture of that unity he has bought for us. Second, we look back. Look all the way back to the Exodus and how the Passover lamb and the parting of the Red Sea, all of that pointed forward to Jesus. And we look back to Jesus who hung on a cross, gave his body, poured out his blood for us, bearing our sin. We don't look back with guilt as I was taught as a Catholic child. You should feel really bad about putting Jesus on that cross. No, that's victory. He rose from the dead. We look back and say, praise God, I'm free. So third, we look up. We are filled with thankfulness and praise that this God, Son of God, emptied Himself, became a man, became a slave, in order to bear our sins. And He rose from the dead and is exalted to the right hand of the Father. And He did all of that to bring us up with Him. To unify us with Him. The King of glory is holding a place for us in heaven. Let that fill you with thanks and praise. Then fourth, look around. Look around. Not only are you united to Christ, the King of Heaven, but you're united to one another, a church family. When you take communion, don't do it with your eyes closed, just looking introspectively. Look around at the household of God that He is building and covering in the blood of the Lamb. As we eat the bread of His body, we take Him into ourselves and we together become the body of Christ. So first, we look within. Second, we look back. Third, look up. Fourth, look around. And fifth, look outward. Look outside of us. Paul said that every time we do communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So another reason we do this every single week is so that we can put the Gospel on display every single week. This is one of the primary ways that Jesus gave us to show, to display, to speak of the Gospel every week. So as you partake, look outward. Think of people in your life that you want to make this truth known to. Think of people in your life that you want to bring into the safety 
of the blood-covered household of God. And finally, look forward. Remember that Jesus said, we will eat and drink with Him in the kingdom to come. We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Think about this. By doing communion every week, we are joining a tradition that began in Israel 3,500 years ago and made clearer 2,000 years ago. Saints throughout history all over the world have been doing this week after week, year after year, saying to each other, the Messiah is coming. Hold on, friends. Jesus is returning. Eat this as a reminder. Drink this to assure yourself He is coming. Christ is with us in a special spiritual way as we share this, where two or three are gathered. That's what He means, that His authority is with us spiritually. But we long for the day when He fully, physically joins us to eat the fruit, drink of the fruit of the vine again. And so we finish in communion. As we partake, we can say with the Apostle John, as he wrote the final words of the Bible, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, as we transition now to a time of sharing this beautiful meal together, would You prevent it from being an empty routine in any of our hearts? Would You flood us with all of this imagery and make our hearts soar to the King of Heaven and long to be with Him again? Help us to look around at each other to keep each other encouraged, to to see each other with thankfulness and to strive to overcome every division because Jesus' blood is pure and holy to make us one under the reign of King Jesus. We do all these things for His glory because He is alive in us and we are covered by Him. Amen.